2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verse 5. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, we have been in 2 Timothy in the back of the New Testament for the last several weeks, and it's an incredible, powerful epistle that we have been engaged in looking at. We're in the last chapter, and keep in mind that these are the last words that we have of Paul the Apostle that he pins in the New Testament. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you'll find your way there, I'm going to begin reading at verse 5 through verse 8 as we read that Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, but Timothy, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of the, uh, an evangelist, uh, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. In verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, Father, as we now uh, get into your word, there's something here for us this morning. And I pray that we would be teachable, attentive. We would remember at last minute to turn those ringers off our phones because we want to be free from distractions. And we ask that you would touch our hearts with your word. Lord, these are very important exhortations given to us, not just for Timothy, but for us today. So bless this time in the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul the Apostle, as he's writing his last words, as he puts pen to parchment that we have in the New Testament, that it's, this is heartfelt. Keep that in mind, because any of us that would give last words to uh, our children or to a spouse or to good friends, whoever it might be, those are going to be very important words. And we know that Paul and Timothy were very close. They had uh, a bond between them that's only found in Christ. Paul had a deep love for Timothy. He calls him his son in the faith. He calls him a beloved son. And Timothy and Paul have ministered together for some 20 years. Ever since Timothy joined Paul and Silas on that second missionary journey, you read about that as you uh, go into Acts chapter 16. And in these 20 years, leading up uh, from that time that Timothy joined Paul and Silas, up until this time that Paul's writing to him, that we know that uh, Timothy has been faithful to Paul coming alongside of him in ministry. He has learned from Paul. He has traveled with Paul. He's been discipled by Paul. He's even uh, suffered with Paul. And Paul would write in the New Testament that I have no one like-minded, just Timothy, Five or six years before this epistle's pen, as a lot of you know, that Paul was released from his first imprisonment in Rome. As you read Acts chapter 21 to the end of the book, you see the, the events that led Paul to be in prison in Rome as he was arrested in Jerusalem. He would go through a series of trials. Paul, being a, a Roman citizen, would appeal to Caesar. They said, to Caesar you shall go. So he's there under house arrest in Rome in his first imprisonment from 60 to 62 AD. He would stand before Caesar Nero. We don't have that record in the scriptures, but we do know that he would stand before Caesar Nero, be released, and from about 62 up to this point where he's rearrested, 67, 68 AD, 
Paul traveled more or less freely, perhaps he would go up into Spain. We know that after his third missionary journey, as he would write the book of Romans, he concluded that letter by saying, I want to come to you guys. I haven't been to Rome, uh, but uh, I'm being hindered right now. It's my desire to come to you. Paul would get to Rome, perhaps not in a way that he thought he would, but he would express in Romans chapter 15 that I desire to go up into Spain. So perhaps he did. But also we know that when he was released from his first imprisonment, that he would uh, have Timothy stay in Ephesus to pastor the church there. Ephesus was a church Paul established on his third missionary journey, a major church of proconsular Asia. And, and as I was in Macedonia, I urge you, Timothy, to, to remain in Ephesus. So Timothy has had a, this daunting task of pastoring this large church there in proconsular Asia. He would also have influence of the other churches there in that area, the churches that you read about in the New Testament, particularly in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But Timothy, he's not only having to deal with the false teachers within the church, as we've discussed going through First and Second Timothy, but persecution has happened as well. We also know that during this time, in between his imprisonments, that he would leave another young protege, disciple Titus, as he's left in Crete to pastor the church there. So as Paul writes 1 Timothy, the first letter to him, and Titus, and then now this second letter to Timothy, those are known as the pastoral epistles. Now in 1 Timothy, and when he wrote to Titus, he would instruct them on church order and church conduct and and, and establishing leadership and how to, to deal with certain individuals in the church, as well as he would give encouragement to them in their walk. So the dates that Paul would write 1 Timothy and Titus is about 63-64 A.D., it would be later, as I've already mentioned, in 67, 68 AD, that Paul is rearrested by the orders of Caesar Nero, the emperor of Rome. At this time, Caesar Nero has been persecuting the church. He has waged war against the Christians. In 64 AD, it was Nero that had the city of Rome be burnt down, and he blamed it on the Christians. And he would begin to persecute the Christians, having them fed to the lions, burnt at the stake. Uh, we know that he would sew them up in wild animal skins and throw them out in the wild to be torn apart by dogs and, and wild animals. And it is ancient historians that would write that, that Caesar Nero, when he was you know, uh, having Christians be put to death, that he would mock them to add to their misery. So Paul's writing during this time, and this second imprisonment of Paul would not be like his first imprisonment where he is under house arrest. He would be chained to a Roman guard 24-7, but he had his own quarters, and it seems as though they indicate as we read those prison epistles of Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, that he would be able to have visitors that would come and see him. No longer is he under house arrest at this time. As he's rearrested, he's taken into custody, taken to the Mamertine dungeon. He would walk up what is called the hallway of darkness. It would be a wooden platform, and there on that platform would be a trap door. And the apostle would be stripped down to his tunic, and they would tie ropes under his arm, and they would open that, that uh, trap door, and they would drop him down into this hole. It, it was a cistern. It was called a Thule Annum uh, prison is what it was called, dungeon. And the door is closed. 
and there he would be in darkness. And the tulianum would be used hundreds of years before this time. There would be human waste. It smelled of human waste. There would be a spring in the corner if anyone dared drink from it. It is cold. It is damp. It is piles of wet straw that you could lay on. It is told to us that that's where Peter would spend the last days of his life before Caesar Nero has him crucified upside down. And what amazes me is in this difficult, horrible time in Paul's life, that as he takes pen to parchment and he writes to Timothy to encourage him, give words to him, as he expresses his love for him, he says, Timothy, you keep fighting uh, the good fight. You keep being a good soldier. You be a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And Paul knew that he had no more ministry ahead of him. You see, there's no more epistles to write. There's no more missionary journeys. There's no more churches he's going to be establishing. There's no more sermons. No more young men to disciple. So he is passing the baton of ministry to Timothy. And the apostle amazes me because he knows, as we read, that his departure is at hand. And he is not complaining. He, he is not focused on that. He's focused on eternity. And even as he opened up this epistle, he says that I write to you according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And we know that as we read Paul's letters, he always kept an eternal perspective, even as he would write in that first prison uh, meant of Colossians, writing to that church, that you keep your eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world. And as he has given these words to Timothy, they are words for us. And as we discussed last time, this, this last charge to Timothy, preach the word, Timothy. It's interesting because the very first charge he gave to him in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is, Timothy, I charge you. This is a command. It's like a military officer giving a, a, a command to a soldier. Timothy, I charge you that you teach no other doctrine. You've got to deal with those that are coming into the church with corrupt minds and, and deceitful words. All these things that we discussed going through First and Second Timothy but I charge you, teach no other doctrine. It's a familiar uh, theme that we see in the two epistles to Timothy. And then he closes by saying, you preach the word. You're to proclaim the words of the king is what you're to do. That includes the gospel and that includes the truth of God's word. And you do it in season and out of season. When you're feeling well and when you're not feeling well. When you are tired and when you are energized. When it's convenient and when it's not convenient. You do it in season and out of season. Convince and rebuke and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Timothy, know, know this, that the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's what we discussed last time. It's a description as we read this that what I believe that we're seeing in our culture, in our day, in our nation. Remember that it was Paul that said in 1 Timothy 4 that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. If you look at the scriptures like the book of Acts and, and, and when you look at all of scripture, when you look at the revivals in the church age, you see when there's a difference between spiritual revival and spiritual decline. 
You see, in, in periods of revival, Christ is over the culture. In, in spiritual decline, culture has priority over Christ. When there is revival, the Word of God is held above everything else. In spiritual decline, there is a dismissal or decline in the priority of the Word of God. In revival, the praises of God are preeminent. In spiritual decline, it is the praise of men and their reputation. In spiritual revival, the message of the gospel for men to repent and come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation, that is the central to the work of the church. In spiritual decline, the priority then becomes social justice and a social gospel and humanitarian work. Now, we are to help others, no doubt about it. We are to serve. We're to remember the orphans and the widows and the poor. Of course we are. But the gospel is to be central in the work of the church, in the message of the church. In revival, purity is desired. In spiritual decline, there is no conviction and an encouragement to continue in sin and carnality. In revival, men will take the role of the priests in their homes, you know, loving their wives, raising their children in the admonition of the Lord. In decline, that is more and more absent. Where there is revival, pastors are committed to teaching the Word of God, all of it. In decline, they will compromise the Word of God. Now, as you look at our culture around us and our nation and the church in our nation, are we seeing revival or are we seeing spiritual decline? I, I think we're seeing spiritual decline. It doesn't mean that God isn't working in churches or isn't revival in, in certain spots and, and God you know, is still saving. We know that. He has this remnant of people. But we have seen over the years and over the decades, the last couple a spiritual decline in our nation. And it doesn't mean that there cannot be revival. I pray for revival. I pray for a great awakening before the Lord comes back because that is the hope of our nation. And you and I as Christians, we are to be praying for our leaders. We are told that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for all men. That's God's desire. We are to pray for our leaders. We are to especially be on our knees praying for our nation and our leaders in this election year because the hope of our nation is us turning back to him and realizing we need you, Lord. We need to repent from our sins, and the church needs revival in our nation. Now, there is revival that has taken place in different parts of the world. The fastest, you know, area where the church is growing is in Iran today. For a little while, it was China, but now it's in the Middle East. That they're coming to Christ, and people are being persecuted for that. There's a revival in parts of the world where, where persecution includes being in prison, being put to death. And so there may be revival that comes to us, to our nation, but it may be revival that comes out of persecution, you and I. Because remember, in the previous chapter that Paul wrote, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How bad will it get? I don't know. I pray the Lord comes back soon and takes us out of here. But I do know this, as Amos said, that there's a famine in the hearing of the Word of God. He didn't say there's a famine of the Word of God. He said there's a famine in the hearing of the Word of God. The Word of God is everywhere. Christian TV, the radios, you know, 
churches everywhere, Bibles everywhere, whatever the case may be, ministries of every sort. There is a famine of the hearing of the Word of God. So Paul here is saying, Timothy, the time's going to come when they're not going to endure sound doctrine. Timothy, know this, the last charge, that you be watchful in all things, verse 5 again, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. First of all, you be watchful in all things. Be wise and discerning in the days in which we are living in. The idea of being watchful is be vigilant, be sober-minded, pay attention. You be watchful in all things. Secondly, endure affliction. It is wonderful to live for the Lord and to serve the Lord, but there are afflictions that come to you and to me because the world will hate us. Jesus said, the world will hate you because it first hated me. We belong to another kingdom. We're on a different course. We belong to a holy nation, the people of God. And Paul was one that he says, endure affliction. Talk about somebody that went through afflictions. On his first missionary journey, he was stoned and left for dead. He was beaten with rods. He was thrown in prison. He was shipwrecked. He was hungry. He went through so much. And in a few verses, as we continue in this chapter, he's going to say that Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Endure affliction. And as you and I are being afflicted, know this, that the Lord still loves you, even as Paul would write, that what will separate us from the love of God will famine, will persecution, will distress. Talk about somebody who knew that, and he knew that even though he went through those seasons, that God still loved him, and God still loves you. Because sometimes in the affliction or difficulties, we think, Lord, you've removed your love from me. And he says, no, no, I haven't. Endure affliction. And then you are to do the work of an evangelist. Thirdly, in other words, give the gospel. Teaching the word is uh, an emphasis in this letter, but give the gospel as well. Here at Calvary Chapel, we give the word of God. We go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, from Genesis to Revelation. I believe it's the great need in the church. But also, I give an invitation for people to receive the gospel. Sometimes people say, why do you do that after each service? Because number one, I can't assume that everybody that passes through the services for every week that, that everyone is a Christian. Second of all, I don't want anybody to think because they heard a Bible study that they're saved. As good as that is. But have you made a commitment for Jesus Christ? Have you come and asked for forgiveness of sin? Have you asked him to be your personal Lord and Savior? And we will give you that opportunity. And then, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. In other words, keep doing what God has called you to do. Timothy's ministry was different than Paul's ministry. But it was important to God. And your ministry is different than anybody else. It's different than my ministry. And whatever he has called you to do and where he has placed you and in the gifts he given to you, it is important to him. So fulfill your ministry. And in our life, as we're desiring to live for him and to serve him in whatever capacity, that we can get discouraged and we can get frustrated. We want to quit. But here you fulfill your ministry. You keep going. Don't quit, Timothy. I'm handing the baton on to you. In verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knew that he's going to be put to death this time. He knows it's coming. Now, in his first imprisonment, Paul would talk about being poured out as a drink offering. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, for those of you who like to 
jot down notes. But the idea of a drink offering is mentioned first in Genesis chapter 35, verse 14, where Jacob poured out a drink offering before the Lord at Bethel, and the Lord changed his name from Jacob, heel snatcher, deceiver, to Israel, which means governed by God. That happened at uh, the brook Jabbok in, in chapter 34. You can read about that. Don't have time to go into it, but the Lord desires for you to be called Israel, governed by God. Not self-reliant, not deceiver, heel snatcher, but governed by God. Now back to the drink offering. Later on in the law, Exodus 29, Leviticus 23, the drink offerings could be part of the sacrifice to the Lord. And the drink offering was when one brought wine before the Lord and poured it out on the altar, given it to the Lord, even as a lamb may be offered to the Lord as uh, the drink offering was being poured out. It, it symbolizes the worshiper who is completely giving and pouring and emptying oneself to the Lord and for the Lord. And Paul had done that in his life and in his ministry, completely poured himself unto the Lord in his ministry. He emptied himself of his religiousness. He gave himself fully, completely to be in a living sacrifice unto the Lord in a service to the Lord. Now, when he wrote the book of Philippians in his first imprisonment, he doesn't know if he's going to be released. He doesn't know what the outcome's going to be. For me to die is gain, he writes in chapter 1 of that epistle. For me to stay here in this life is more needful for you. Here he knows this is it. I've given my all for Christ in my ministry to him. My departure now is at hand, and I'm ready to go. And notice he doesn't say, I'm going to die, Timothy. It's all over with. Why did God put me in this place? You know, after all these years of faithful service, I should have retired. I should have been on an island in the Mediterranean somewhere. No, he says, my departure is at hand. I am leaving this life. And the meaning departure literally means to be set free. He knows he's going to be set free free. It means to hoist an anchor and set sail. And Paul isn't in despair. He isn't downcast. He is not murmuring and complaining about his situation. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And when he's facing death, he's talking about eternal life. He remembered the promise of eternal life found in Christ. He knew that heaven was real. He's seen his departure as being released. I am ready. And Paul sums up his life in ministry in verse 7. For I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. People today fight for a lot of things. For their political candidate, their party, for the environment, the rainforest, the spotted owl. They fight for all kinds of different things. Here Paul writes and he says, I have fought the good fight. Remember that when he was writing about, you know, overseers, the, the bishop, the, 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 the overseer, the pastor, that it's a good work in 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we take inventory this morning of our own lives, what work, what fight is a priority for you, for me? Are we willing to do a good work, to fight a good fight for the cause of Christ? Paul would write in chapter 2, people are being held captive by the enemy Satan. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he said, I charge you that you wage the good warfare, Timothy. It's a battle out there. 
In this epistle, he told Timothy that you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, but he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We are to fight the good fight and to remember the words of Nehemiah as he was giving it to the people who were discouraged. And they said, the rubble's too much. We can't build the wall. And it was Nehemiah that stationed the people in front of you know, uh, their houses with their families on the wall with a trial in one hand and a sword in the other hand. And he said this, remember, the Lord is great and awesome. And fight for your brethren and fight for your sons and fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your houses. Are you and I willing to fight the good fight, the good fight of the Spirit? Fight for your marriage, fight for your kids, fight for your brethren, fight for truth, for the cause of Christ, because it is a good fight. Put on the whole armor of God. Because the enemy is always throwing the fiery darts at us and coming against us. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. And of course, it was Paul who said to Timothy, be the athlete that competes according to the rules. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, don't you know that those who run in a race run and one receives the prize? Earlier in his ministry, Paul, as he would address the Ephesian elders, He would say to them that the Holy Spirit has testified to me that chains and tribulations await me as I head to Jerusalem. And the apostle says, but none of those things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I might finish my race with joy in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be able to say when I come to the end of my life, if the Lord tarries and I come to the end of my life and I close my eyes and I breathe my last to be able to say, I have run my race and I want to do it with joy. To run with endurance the race that is set before me. That race, it isn't that you're racing against anybody else. It might be translated a course. We all have a course, a race to run. Run your race. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. And then thirdly, I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith. It's a military term. He's guarded the faith. He stayed true to the word of God. He stayed true to the gospel. He refused to, you know, back down from the legalists and the Judaizers that are coming along and giving another gospel to those who were of corrupt minds and deceitful words. Those who had a form of godliness but denying his power. Those who were counterfeit. Those who have the prosperity teaching. He said to Timothy, you stay away from them. He guarded the faith. I have persevered. I finished what is set before me. I had purpose in life. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I, I, I have walked the last mile. I've written the last epistle. I've given my last teaching. My departure is at hand. I am done. I finished my race, my course. I am done. Listen, in ministry, I have no agendas. I don't. I don't have up on the wall, you know, where I meet with the staff that, that here's the goal, how many people we're going to have and how much money we want to take in and how popular we want to be, 
I, I have no agendas in ministry except to be faithful to give you the word of God. A very simple vision. People that are new say, what's your vision? To make sure you're the best fed, best loved sheep in Greeley. With God's help and his grace. And I want to do everything that I can to help you be a helper of your joy in running your race, your course. And I look so forward to these words being spoken to me. Lord, help me that I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because we will all stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it is my desire for you to hear those words. This is real. And it should be real to us. And we have a departure And do we have the mindset to say, Lord, help me to finish my race, to keep fighting the good fight, to to guard the faith so I can stand before my Savior to receive a crown of righteousness because I am focused on heaven and I look forward to seeing him. We should be looking forward to the appearing of our Lord. It drives me crazy when I hear more and more pastors say, you shouldn't talk about the return of the Lord. Stop talking about it. I'm not going to stop talking about it because the Bible talks about it. We should be looking for the Lord's return, looking for when he takes us home. I don't know the day or the hour that the Lord comes back. I don't know the day or the hour he takes me home. But I do know this, that you and I in Christ have a glorious future. And how can we not love his appearing? Is it because we're so invested in this world that we don't want him to come? And until then... I'm going to occupy till you come, Lord. I'm going to invest in the kingdom. I want to keep teaching as long as I have breath. And the Lord allows me to do it. And when he's done with me, then take me home. I don't want to be like Demas in a few verses. We'll talk about him next time. Paul writes, Ah, Demas, he's forsaken us having loved this present world. That's such a sad note for someone to be recorded for all eternity. He loved this present world. I want to be a good steward of what God has given to me. To invest. And know that I will stand before him. Quickly, 1968, some of us that are old enough to remember the Summer Olympics in Mexico City. The marathon, the last event before they closed the, the Olympics you know, for the, for the year. Uh, and the closing ceremonies were going to be that, that last day, that last evening. Well, the last event was the marathon, 75 runners. And there was one runner called, his name was John Stephen Akwari from Tanzania. In his training, he trained, but what happened is a lot of the runners had a difficult time up at that altitude in Mexico City, over 6,000 feet, I believe. So there were 18 runners that didn't finish. 57 runners finished. But here John Stephen Akwai, halfway through the race, he began to cramp up. And then he got into a crowd of runners. He fell. He hurt his shoulder. He dislocated his knee. He stopped. They put a bandage around him. He kept hobbling. He kept running. Out of the 57 runners that finished, he came in 57th. Again, 18 didn't finish. 
He's coming into the Olympic Stadium when they're getting ready to close the Olympic ceremonies. He comes in and he has a bandage wrapped around his knee and he comes hobbling in. He's in great pain and he finishes the race. And they asked him, why did you keep going? Why didn't you stop? Others stopped. Why did you finish the race? Why did you do it in such pain? And he said this, that my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race, but to finish the race. The Lord is calling you to finish the race that is set before you. And there is pain and there is difficulty. And there are seasons, isn't there, and days where we're just hobbling along. He created you for his good pleasures. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And he promises this, that he will complete that work that he's begun in you. Just look to him and know that he will help you. It's so wonderful to say, Lord, I want to finish my race. And he will honor that heart. And you keep fighting the good fight. And you keep the faith. And when you close your eyes because you've loved his appearing, a crown of righteousness waiting for you. So, Father, we thank you for these words and this encouragement to us. Thank you that we're reminded that we have a course that we're to run, a race that is set before us. And Lord, we want to run that race with joy. I want to pray for anybody here that you haven't entered into that spiritual race, coming to Christ. I pray that you understand the gospel. That all of us have sinned and you have sinned. And salvation comes by repenting and turning to Jesus and knowing that he made atonement for your sins. He went to that cross for you because he loves you. And all of your sins were placed upon him. He died in place of you, for you, for forgiveness of sin. He was put into a grave. He rose again after three days. He's the only one that conquered sin and death, proving that he's the son of God, validating what he did on the cross. And he says to you this morning, come. Come in faith and receive salvation as you call upon the name of the Lord. Quit going in the direction you're going. Quit thinking if you think that you can be good enough, you will never be good enough. Or if you come from a Christian family that you're saved. Or if you came to church or belong to a church. None of those things will save you. It is a heart that says, I come to you, Jesus, and I surrender my life to you. Forgive me. You can do that right now. Today is the day of salvation. He loves you. If you don't know if you're right with God, if your life was to come to an end, because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us, do you have the assurance that you belong to Jesus? If not, come to him. And you can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I thank you for that. Forgive me. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you're alive. And Lord, I thank you for bringing me into the family of God and for this new beginning. And help me to run my race and to now fight the fight of the Spirit. 
Thank you for bringing me here. And I pray that I would walk with you and know you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And listen, if anybody prayed that prayer, even if you're online or listening on the radio later, call the church, tell us the decision you made. If you're here in a coffee shop in this sanctuary, will you come forward as we close here? A prayer team will be here. Tell them the decision that you made. But for all of us, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you and on the prize, to fight the good fight, to keep the faith to finish our course that you have set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand? And of course, we're here to pray with you and for you if you have any prayer needs. It's